Psalm. It says, Give justice to the lowly and the orphan. Maintain the right of the poor and the destitute. Rescue the lowly and the needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. And then from Romans, the 10th chapter, says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord is Lord of all who gives richly to all who call on Him. As we continue this series, Be the Church, we're basing this series on this banner that hangs right here in our gathering space. This banner has been here for a long, long time to the point almost that it's become sort of common and we, we know it's here, but you know, you just don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. It's kind of like when you're driving home, maybe after work or after class or something, and you left where you started, and then you pull in your driveway, and you pull in your driveway, and it occurs to you that you don't remember what a single traffic light looked like. You just hope it was green <laughs> when you went through. Sometimes they just become common, don't they? But we've, Pam and I wanted to actually focus on this banner and what it says during this springtime series. Over the last several Sundays, we've talked about caring for the poor and sharing our earthly and spiritual resources. We've talked about protecting the environment, embracing diversity. And last week, Pam talked to us about the importance of forgiveness and forgiving often. Today, we're looking at a couple of lines on that banner that reminds us that as followers of the ways and the teachings of Jesus, we are called to reject racism and to fight for the powerless. We believe this was important to Jesus, and that's one of the reasons that it's important to us. And before I say anything else, I want to make it clear that we are not saying and we do not believe that people who aren't white are without power. As a matter of fact, I'd say that in many ways the exact opposite is true. But we've got to be honest and we've got to admit that in our society, especially here in the state where we live, the overwhelming majority of people with the power and the authority to make good change are not people of color. Here in Lexington, we're fortunate to have six of our 15 urban county council members as people of color. That diversity and those influences in both culture and experiences are important if our city is to be healthy and honest with itself. But on the state level, of the 138 members of our state legislature, less than a dozen of them are people of color. And all but one of them is a member of the minority political party, which means their already diminished influence because of their race is even more diminished because of their politics. A little over 82% of Kentucky's population is white. If racial minorities were accurately represented in our state legislature, there should be at least a dozen more people of color in our state legislature. 
But legislative redistricting has made that pretty much impossible. And that means that important issues that especially impact racial minorities are rarely, if ever, meaningfully addressed. Something else. Less than a quarter of the CEOs of America's 500 largest companies are people of color. And it's about the same when it comes to journalists. Toni Morrison, the writer, talks about something called white gaze in American news reporting. White gaze assumes that the audience reading or seeing the news is white, so most of the stories are crafted for a white audience. That means that the stories of black, Hispanic, and Latino, Asian, Native American, and other people of color are not being told as they should. And that means they're invisible when it comes to being understood and appreciated. And although they're not powerless, that certainly does a lot to rob them of the power, the voice, and the influence that they should really have. Jane Elliott, some of you familiar with Jane Elliott? She spent decades educating and revealing the truth about racism in our culture. She exposes prejudice and bigotry as an irrational class system based upon purely arbitrary factors. We're going to see a little video of Jane here in just a moment, but a little heads up. Her style may actually seem harsh to some folks, and her words are very direct. Also, the video that we're about to see uh, first aired back in 2017, so her references to Dr. King's assassination reflect that date. Take a look. Well, I said if I were, if I were black, they'd have killed me a long time ago. And if I were black and saying the things I say, I, I wouldn't be alive. Bullshit! No, you're not gonna say I'm sorry there's racism. No, I do not have to ask you nicely. I consider this exercise an injection of the live virus of racism. I watched my students become what I told them they were. I watched little, wonderful, brown-eyed white people become vicious, ugly, nasty, discriminating, domineering people in the space of 15 minutes. I watched brilliant, little, blue-eyed, white Christian children become timid and frightened and angry and unable to learn in the space of 15 minutes. If you do that with a whole group of people for a lifetime, you change them psychologically. You convince those who are analogous to the brown-eyed people that they are superior, that they are perfect, that they have the right to rule. Did you learn anything this morning? I think I learned from the experience of feeling like I was in a glass cage and I was powerless. I realized this morning that there were very few times in my life that I've ever been discriminated against, very few. And you convince those who take the place of the blue-eyed students, that they are less than. How did they feel yesterday? Down like a dog on a leash. If you do that for a lifetime, what do you suppose that does to them? 
you find out that there are people of color who refuse to live down to our expectations of them. I am now watching, at the national level, that exercise that I did based on eye color being reenacted in the government of the United States of America. I've done this with people of all ages for the last 50 years. Now think about that. Next year it will be the 50th anniversary of the killing of Martin Luther King Jr. and the beginning of the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise. When are we going to learn? When are we going to put a stop to this? White people's number one freedom in the United States of America is the freedom to be totally ignorant about those who are other than white. We live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. White people are the free, and people of color have to be brave. I want this situation to change. I want it to be such that no black person has to have courage to get up in the morning any more than I, as a white person, have to have courage to get up in the morning. This is the most important book you or I or anybody else will ever read. I'm an educator. Every educator should refuse to perpetuate the myth of white superiority. There's only one race. It's the human race. Wow. If you get a chance, you can go online and just look up Jane Elliott and you can see her actually doing that exercise, the blue-eyed, brown-eyed exercise. It is powerful. And a heads up, it's also a little disturbing to see, but it's worth the watch. Now, I'm not gonna sit here and pretend that I know what it's like to be a person of color. I've not lived their experiences and I'm not qualified to be their voice. I'm a white guy who grew up in a neighborhood and went to schools that were not very racially diverse. The church I grew up in was even less diverse. The folks there weren't racist, it's just that our style of worship and our singing wasn't what the folks in the black churches preferred. I remember some time back being here at uh, our church on a Saturday and I was doing some work on our sound system and when I turned it on I could hear what sounded like a church service going on. At first I thought it was a radio station that was kind of bleeding into our uh, speaker system but then I discovered that somehow our sound system was picking up the service that was going on over at the Seventh-day Adventist church across the street. Folks, it was good. It was good. Their singing was big and bold and it was full of the culture and the music and the spirit and the energy that most black churches are known for. I just sat here and I just listened and and enjoyed and I had church with these folks and they had no idea <laughs> but as a white person living in a predominantly white culture I cannot speak firsthand to the racism that people of color face but I know that they face it every single day we're not talking about this today because we think racism is a problem here at BUCC I think I know us pretty well 
I know our hearts and I know the hearts of our folks here. And so when we speak on issues like this one or any other issue that calls us to rise up and seek justice, it's not because we think anyone here is guilty of those things. It's because we need to be stirred and we need to be reminded that we as the church are God's means to make change in the world I'm proud of the commitment that you and we have to being justice-minded people who are moved with compassion and hearts that want to serve Jesus the way Jesus teaches us to serve. And part of that service is being resistors of systems and structures that discriminate and are unfair. When we talk about these things from this platform, we're simply saying that we are, the, are aware of the state of our world and the ways that too many of our fellow humans are being done wrong. And we as a church want to do something to make it stop. We feel it's what Jesus wants us to do because it's something that Jesus would do. It's something that Jesus did. Over and over again, he stepped up to defend the people who were victims of bigotry and classism and racism and religious bullying. He just couldn't stand by and allow the abuses to happen, and neither should we. I have no doubt if Jesus were in Charlottesville, Virginia back in August of 2017, he would be standing with the racial justice activists who gathered there and against the white nationalists who came to terrorize them. I know which side Jesus would be on. I have no doubt that if Jesus were in Selma, Alabama back in March of 1965, he would have been one of the 600 plus marchers who crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He would have been one of those who were brutally attacked by state troopers who'd been ordered by the governor to do whatever it takes to stop that march. I know which side Jesus would be on. I have no doubt that if Jesus had been on that reservation at Sand Creek in southeastern Colorado back in November of 1864, he would have stood among the more than 160 Cheyenne and Arapaho people the women, the children, and the elderly indigenous people who were massacred by U.S. soldiers. That grisly slaughter may have been led by a Methodist preacher, and it was, but I know which side Jesus would be on. It was the government and it was the churches that took indigenous children from their homes and their families and forced them to attend boarding schools where their identities were stripped, their languages were forbidden, and their cultures were erased. Churches be damned. I know exactly which side Jesus would be on. I believe Jesus walked among the Japanese Americans who were interred here in the U.S. during World War II and among the Vietnamese who faced routine discrimination after the Vietnamese War. And I believe he stood with the Chinese people who lived here in the United States back in the late 1800s and faced incredible discrimination. I believe that he saw all of their humanity, and I believe I know which side Jesus would be on. Jesus is always on the side of humanity. Jesus is always on the side of the oppressed. Jesus is always, every single time, on the side of racism's victims. Every single time. So far I've been talking about uh, racism closer to us here 
in our state and in our country. But I know it's not just a thing here. I know that racism and classism is very much a universal thing. And it's true that it's not just a thing that white people are guilty of. And I'm grateful that there are groups and organizations that work to combat and defeat racism wherever it is around the world. There are voices much more powerful than mine and ours that are speaking up and speaking out and making change happen. One of the ways that we can make our voices even louder is by joining our voice with theirs. BUCC is a part of the United Church of Christ. The UCC is a beautifully inclusive and diverse community of Christians that's committed to doing its part to building a world that's just for everyone. The UCC's Ministry for Racial and Restorative Justice is leading the work and addressing the harms and the sin of racism and classism. We're proud to be a part of the UCC because of what it believes and what it stands for and what it stands against. I usually try not to make hard definitive declarations when I'm standing here, when I'm here on this platform. Many times instead of saying something is absolutely true, you'll hear me say or I try to remember to say that I believe that something is true instead of saying that it's absolutely true. I, I try to leave room to learn more and to understand better and maybe even sometimes change the way I believe when I've been better informed. But I can say confidently and I know that it's true. Racism is sin. Racism is sin. I believe racism is more than ideology. I believe racism is a condition of the heart. I believe when someone feels the color of their skin makes them superior to others, yes, their minds have been lied to, but I also believe that their hearts have been deceived. So, how do you deal with that? Is there a solution? I'd love to say that we can put an end to racism, but I don't guess there's anyone here who believes that'll ever happen. But I do believe we can still make change, even if it's just a little bit, even if it's just here in our community, in our city, in our state. We say it around here all the time that we are a place that welcomes and celebrates diversity. You'll not hear us say that we don't see color here at BUCC. The answer to racism is not being blind to our differences. We do see color here at BUCC. As a matter of fact, I think that pretending that people of other races and cultures don't exist is itself a form of racism. We must acknowledge our differences. Humankind was created in God's image and likeness. All of us, every one of us, are image bearers of God. The color of our skin does not make us look more or less like God. 
None of the other things that culture and society use to set us apart from one another are proof of our God-likeness. If you believe the story, in the beginning, God created humans. Nobody can tell you what language they spoke. Nobody can tell you what their skin looked like. In the beginning, God created one race, one human race. Thanks for joining us. Find out more about what we're doing at KennyBishop.com.